Committed to fair debate and honest information, the Reality Check has arrived. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Reality Check Radio. And you are with Breakfast with Marie this morning, sitting in for Paul in the hot seat. And I have the great pleasure to welcome Professor Alvin Moss from the University of Medicine of West Virginia. Good morning and welcome to Reality Check Radio. Good morning. Thank you very much. Uh, so good to have you along. Now, for our listeners who may not have come across you in the literature or out in the wider digital world, let us know where you're from and what brought you to an article that we're going to discuss very, very shortly. Sure. Sure. Well, I am at West Virginia University School of Medicine. I'm a professor and I direct our statewide ethics committee network. And we annually get together for a meeting of physicians, nurses, social workers, chaplains. It's really an interdisciplinary group. And when we first were allowed to get together after the lockdowns were over, which was May of 2022, we realized in a panel discussion that we were talking about the COVID pandemic and the response to it, we realized that a lot of people had many things to say about it. And I'll just give one example. A nurse who worked in a nursing home reported on the fact that the patients were moved from room to room to room. There was no dignity, no respect. And finally, sometimes they were even put in the kitchen because they weren't using the kitchen because of the lockdown procedures they were using. So there was just a certain indignity about it. So myself and a philosopher ethicist who also uh, teaches at West Virginia University and I, we were both speaking at this conference. We compared notes. And it was really uh, Dan Miller, the first author, who said this: these lockdowns were done without any consideration of the countervailing, con- uh, you know, considerations or the the repercussions, potential repercussions in many different areas of life. We'll probably get into them, but so I am, uh, in addition to being an internist and a nephrologist and board certified in hospice and palliative medicine, I'm also fellowship trained in clinical medical ethics, and it was my interest in medical ethics that really um, sparked my concern about the lockdown and what I knew about public health ectics from having taught a couple of electives about it over the years. But I should say, Marie, that my opinions are my own and that they're not those of my employer. Isn't it interesting that you had that conversation, was it 2022? Because that was probably the first time that everyone was in person. Because up until yes. that point, all these digital barriers and roadblocks had gone up. Yes. And that in-person contact is so important. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And what's interesting really is there were a group of maybe 85 of us in the room. And we had people speaking up who said things like, I never talk in large groups, but I just have to get this off my chest. And it was, for example, that nurse talking about how 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 much moral distress she had faced from just things that she witnessed and that she had to do to do her job. Yeah, yeah. So in the article, which is called Rethinking the Ethics of COVID-19 Pandemic Lockdowns, there's this paragraph, and it says, long before the COVID-19 pandemic, public health leaders cautioned against the forerunners to lockdowns in pandemics, forced isolation and quarantine. Isolation is a separation of, of affected persons for the period of communicability, for example, at home, in nursing homes, or in hospital COVID-19 units, to prevent the spread of infection in the community. 
Quarantine is the restriction of activities of exposed healthy individuals for the duration of the incubation period to see if they become affected. The COVID-19 lockdowns were even more restrictive than isolation and quarantine because nearly all persons were ordered to stay at home, even those who were well and who had not had infection exposure. This is the first time in world history of pandemics. Why? Yes, this and that's a really good question. And that paragraph actually leads into the next one. So before I answer your question, why? Throughout public health ethics literature, it says over and over again, use the least restrictive means possible. Voluntary measures are preferable to mandates, to mandatory measures, right? We always need to respect the dignity of the person. We don't, a lockdown would be a deprivation of human liberty. And these are not things that we would want to do. And it cautioned, the literature cautioned over and over again, whatever you do, don't lose the public confidence in public health. So we have that for, you know, for 20 years in the public health ethics literature, that has these, these thoughts, principles have been repeated over and over again. And then we went directly against them. And I think your question, why, well, I'm going to sort of reflect it back to you because certainly you're a knowledgeable observer too. We did many things that went against the conventional wisdom of how you do things, right? Mm -hmm. We don't do a one size fits all. That's not the way good medicine is practiced. We identify those who are most vulnerable and make sure they're protected. But those who have essentially minimal risk, we don't deprive them of their liberty. You know, we, that is not the way we have previously done things. So um, I, I would almost throw it back to you. What, what did you observe? I mean, clearly they weren't using the recommendations in the literature to make their decisions. No, definitely not. And there was a, a, also a change in decisions too. I mean, we saw that uh, early on in the pandemic process. So I was traveling right across January and February of 2020. So the pandemic was beginning to unfold across the Western Hemisphere. And I was in the United States for a good chunk of that time. And I remember Anthony Fauci talking about the ineffectiveness of masking. Yes, yes. But then yeah. that messaging just completely, completely flipped on a dime with no scientific backing whatsoever. Right, right. I mean, I had reviewed that literature about masking because as a physician who, um, uh, you know, takes a religious exemption and doesn't want to get the flu shot, I've had to wear masks during flu season. And so I've been, it's been of interest to me to see just how strong are the data about the effectiveness of, of masks and, and the data are not strong. And in fact, in, in Canada, uh, several times the uh, Ontario Nurses Association has sued hospitals that had a, uh, a masking policy. So if you didn't get the flu shot, you were mandated, required to wear a, a mask all day long throughout flu season while you were working. And so the nurses challenged that. And in fact, they won their case because the evidence didn't support the effectiveness of masks. So Dr. Fauci, no doubt, knew that. He knew that the evidence was weak to support masks to prevent the spread of flu or respiratory spread um, infections. And so I think that's the reason why he came out initially that way. But then there was, a, a I would say, an agenda 
where they really wanted to stir up fear and certainly, you know, telling everybody to put on a mask certainly fit well and to stand at least six feet apart from each other made us afraid of each other. And then, of course, I don't know what word you use in New Zealand, but we use the word snitch. And in New York, for example, uh, people were encouraged to snitch on their neighbors if they weren't wearing a mask or if they weren't at least six feet apart. In New Zealand, we took it one step further. Our Prime Minister uh, openly encouraged us in the first lockdown not to talk to our neighbours. And they set up a police phone line specifically for neighbours to snitch on their neighbours if they believed that they were breaking lockdown protocol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the um, one of the things that the lockdowns did, at least in the United States, and you can tell me if it happened also in New Zealand, was it really, and even the CDC was the one who admitted this, it, it ushered in a mental health crisis of alarming proportions, the loneliness, the depression, the uh, teenage girls attempting suicide, the alcohol-related deaths, the suicides, the overdose deaths, all of those things went up dramatically during the pandemic. They had been rising slowly prior to the pandemic, but then went up another 15, 20, 25% in one year once the lockdowns were started. So, so go ahead. In, in, in regards to that, because one of the things, and I don't know whether this happened in the US, but one of the things that really annoyed me was the use of the word vulnerable but without a clear definition of what vulnerable actually meant. Right, right. And in fact, we knew who was vulnerable early on because the CDC fairly early on said, I think it was something like, I forget what percentage of the deaths, but the vast majority of the deaths were people who were over the age of 70 and or had multiple comorbidities. And I, I recall one report said that on average, the people who are dying had 2.6 comorbidities. So in other words, you know, maybe diabetes, maybe obesity, maybe lung disease, heart disease. But these were not, you know, people under the age of 70 who were just going about their life and didn't have serious illnesses. They were not really at risk. In fact, um, I looked at the infection fatality rate and it was vastly different in people over the age of 70 compared to people under the age of 70. And uh, really the younger you get, the less the risk. So this, the, you know, the, the school closures as part of the lockdowns were, were incredibly harmful. Um, you know, in the article, we document that the, uh, Department of Education, the United States Department of Education, uh, does, uh, does education statistics and noted that fourth and eighth graders in the United States in their reading and math scores, their scores were much worse than they had been in decades. So that clearly it was very harmful to the education of children who were locked out of their schools and, and tried to do remote learning. But as we learned, a lot of children weren't capable of doing remote learning because their parents may not have had internet access or they may not have had devices for internet access. So the children, you know, could, could be on their devices while other, you know, computers weren't used for work related things, for example. Um, so uh, devastating emotionally, you know, mental health wise, devastating um, in terms of the education of children. And then we could go on. We could talk about employment. We could talk about the fact that if anything, public health ethics 
is seeks to be equitable. It seeks to treat people fairly and to treat all groups of people fairly. So what you wouldn't want in uh, properly executed public health interventions is you wouldn't want the lower income patients or people treated worse than people who are higher in income. But that's exactly what happened. We saw that in, uh, in employment. We saw that in educational outcomes, the children from lower income, uh, Black Americans, uh, Native Indian Americans had much worse educational outcomes as a result of the pandemic or after the pandemic uh, than, than uh, people who were more privileged and had higher incomes. So inequitable, restrictive, I mean, all unfair, all the things that you, the opposite of what public health ethics should try and achieve. That's the conundrum, isn't it? Because politics got involved very early on. When you look at the current administration, which is like the one we have here, which is exceptionally progressive and works very, very hard in terms of uplifting the benefits and the awareness of oppressed classes and minorities. And yet, and yet, as you've just outlined with these lockdowns, they had the exact opposite effect. How do they justify that away? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't think they tried to. I think they they acknowledged that that was regrettable. But the thing that that for your listeners and and certainly for everybody in the United States is if somebody starts talking about a lockdown again, we have to ask, well, what are you going to do to protect the children? What are you going to do to protect the vulnerable? What are you going to do to protect those who have lower incomes who maybe can't work remotely, but have to, you know, have to report for duty in person. Um, and, and they're not going to, because we don't have the evidence base, they're not going to have a solution um, to that problem. Um, mm. You know, that was the point we made in the article is the lockdowns, although public health ethics literature had said for years, don't go this route. It's, you know, it goes against the principles of, of medical ethics. We didn't have the hard data that we have now for all the devastating consequences of doing just what was basically said, you know, uh, don't do this. It was, it was not forbidden, if you will, but it was strongly recommended against. Okay. And, um, what's interesting is, um, you're probably aware of Dr. Anthony Fauci in New Zealand. You're probably aware of who he might be, but in an interview, um, he even said he, he knew these were draconian measures, you know, and I had to just to make sure I had it right. I looked up who Draco was. He was a Greek city statesman who is known for his harsh, harsh and utterly repressive measures. And so Dr. Fauci described the lockdowns as draconian. And he said he knew there would be collateral damage and negative consequences. But he and the public health experts who worked with them totally underestimated how severe they were. And even once it became apparent how devastating they were, they didn't ease up. You know, only in, in the United States, in Florida, for example, in Georgia, we had a couple of, of states where the governors, um, you know, sort of more or less unilaterally just said, we're not following the CDC recommendations anymore. We're mm -hmm. doing what we think is best for the people of our state. Well, I was going to bring that up because because this is where the politics comes in, isn't it? So, I yes. mean, you had states like California, Michigan, New York were very draconian in their lockdown measures. And then you had states like Georgia, Florida, South Dakota, 
for argument's sake, took more of a Swedish model to it. Yep. So therefore, with those, I mean, those would be two completely opposing data sets now. Yes. Yes. How has any of that come out in literature and been discussed openly? So, um, you know, the mainstream media in the United States doesn't want to call attention to the fact that really those who locked down very harshly and those who pretty much opened up as soon as they could, often the outcomes are better in the states that opened up earlier, as opposed to like California, which has very poor outcomes, my recollection. I mean, we have something called Worldometer. It's available to you too. I don't know if you call it Worldometer or Worldometer, but, um, you know, and you can look at the cases per million or the deaths per million and, and the states that really locked down did not have better outcomes. And in point of fact, those that really locked down had much worse economic outcomes and educational outcomes. So they're really harms. But let me come to this difference between the states the difference between the states and the fact that those who locked down the most severely didn't have better outcomes. In fact, often they had worse outcomes. A result of all this, what we've been talking about, masks, no masks, wear two masks. At one point, Dr. Fauci said everybody should be wearing two masks. Um, you know, he went, I think somebody kind of, he, he flip-flopped five times on masks is what one, one commentator said. But all of this, the public was not, at least in the United States, was not asleep. You know, because the, uh, there was a poll by NBC News, a major mainstream media uh, news outlet in January of 2022 that showed that the majority of Americans no longer trusted the CDC on management of COVID. And another marker for that is although roughly about two thirds of Americans got at least one COVID shot, only 30 percent got the first booster, you know, after the first series within a year, they said, oh, we see waning effectiveness of these shots. In fact, the Delta variant had developed during, you know, the pandemic and the Delta variant was worse probably than the, uh, you know, than the Alpha variant. And what was interesting is in countries that really kept good records like Israel, the majority of the people who were hospitalized and very sick and even dying were the doubly vaccinated, you know, the fully up to date according to the original definition. So by the time you're a year out, you now have only a third of Americans getting the first booster dose. And then if you recall a year later, then they brought out the bivalent booster, you know, which had, uh, you know, some activity against the Omicron variant. And only 18% of Americans had gotten the bivalent booster. So what's going to be really curious now, especially you may have noticed just this week, the FDA and CDC yeah. just approved a new um, a new uh, booster, okay, that's targeted against a, a variant that was circulating in the United States three months ago, but it's almost no, not to be found. So we have a mismatched booster. And the question is, what percentage of Americans are going to get this i'm and, i'm guessing it's going to be low and and the, the concerning thing about that even if you believed that this was necessary was the recommendations that they still recommended it even on emergency use for 6 months and above which yes. is just insane so let's unpick the thread with the cdc i looked at that firstly and it was released and approved on the september 11 which i yes. found yes. slightly yes. ironic it is uh, yes and then 
that whole sort of definition of madness of doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting a different result. Yes. And the mistrust, the public perception, like there seems to be a disconnect between those making the decisions and the public in which they're making the decisions for. Is that something you're observing in the United States? Oh, absolutely. So when I talk to my colleagues, when I talk to a bunch of doctors, in fact, I just recently, we were conducting fellowship interviews, fellowship in, in medical training, somebody who finishes a residency, you know, the internship and a couple of years after that, and then they want to do specialized training, they're, 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 they become fellows. And so I was interviewing a bunch of our fellow candidates, and we got into a discussion about the distrust of physicians and the medical system now in the United States. I mean, you know, when families are told they can't visit their loved ones who are dying, when they're told to wear masks and then not wear masks and then wear masks, and when they observe that the vaccinated are getting COVID just like the unvaccinated and maybe even getting sicker than the unvaccinated. Uh, we've had two studies. I don't know if you're aware of the Cleveland Clinic is a well-known medical institution in the United States. And the Cleveland Clinic came out with a couple of interesting studies in June. Uh, one showed that the more booster shots you got, the more likely you were to get COVID, <laughs> which certainly doesn't speak to the effectiveness of the vaccine. And then the other was that the uh, the bivalent booster did not seem to be effective against, in fact, it had negative effectiveness against the Omicron variant. So, um, you know, why would you trust a system where the things that you're being strongly recommended to do are turning out not to be good for your health. I mean, you know, uh, we, we heard uh, get vaccinated and you won't get COVID. And now everybody I know has had COVID, whether they were vaccinated or not. And they may have even had it several times. And I've had patients say, I got all five boosters and I still got COVID three times. You know, um, they say, well, maybe it was milder because I had all those boosters, but actually the data don't suggest that. In fact, there's, you've probably been reading about immune escape and they're, mm. they're, virologists who are talking about the fact that, uh, you know, people who are um, have natural immunity seem to be much better able to ha handle these new variants as they come mm -hmm. along, because they, um, you know, the, their, their immune system has not been trained to uh, respond with antibodies to a variant that's no longer circuit. Mm. See, we have a um, pandemic of metaphorical elephants in this country. What we had here was a it's interesting scenario because we were an island, a series of islands. Uh, we had a natural moat around us, and our borders closed relatively quickly. So the uh, they closed the borders, I think, within five days. And everyone that was told that if you're offshore and you want to get home, you need to do it now. Only a very small percentage of them managed to do it, but of course, the virus came in with it. We went into lockdown at the end of March 2020. Effectively, after that, after that original Wuhan outbreak, New Zealand eliminated the virus from its shores. And then we went into exceptionally uh, draconian, almost pernicious-like lottery. It was almost a Hunger Games-type scenario in order to, to re-enter your country with quarantine and the like. So what we had here was is a country uh, locking us down in order to get ready for a vaccine that everyone was promised is going to fix everything. And then this mass vaccination campaign rolled out. So we had a situation where we had vaccination prior to initial infection 
What we're seeing now is a wave of sickness. Our headlines, um, there was one just last week, uh, an emergency room doctor talking about the illnesses coming through his door and adults having gravely bad RSV virus and the worst flu season that they'd seen in a long time and all of these things. And as I said, we have a pandemic of metaphorical elephants running around because nobody wants to look at the overall measures in its entirety to say that, well, actually, you have, you know, you're now sowing what you've reaped. Right. We caused this. Yes. Yes. There's literature on the flu shot. I don't know if you know this, that people after the flu shot during flu season may not get the flu, may not get the flu, but they'll get all sorts of other influenza like viruses. So that you wonder with all the immune systems that have been damaged by you know, repeated shots, COVID shots, if people are going to be more susceptible to, to the flu or to other, you know, respiratory viruses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, they're talking about other things as well. You know, are we seeing more strokes, more heart attacks? Certainly myocarditis is something that's just off the charts. And for, unfortunately, in, in young men, you know, mm. 18 to 24 year old men. And we had so an it, exceptionally high vaccination rate here. And, and we did a divisive digital passport system. So by the time that that system came in, all the restrictions around that in regards to vaccination, it meant that 80% of all working aged New Zealanders were under a mandate of one form or another. It's difficult because, you know, we've just had a prime minister come out a couple of weeks ago saying, oh, no, the vaccine was never compulsory. No one was forced to take it. Then that brings up the question of those ethics, because you have informed consent. I mean, informed consent has been the the bedrock of medical ethics. Yes. Why? Again, why? Where did it go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the informed consent has seven elements, but one of them is an absence of coercion. It's voluntariness. It's not informed consent if you're being forced or mandated to take this, you know, medical treatment. So that's what I was saying. We threw out of the window, if you will, all that we knew about public health ethics, clinical medical ethics, and and it became a tyranny of sorts. And, you know, people who are um, skeptical say, Pharma has had too much influence in our government, at least in this country, perhaps in your country. I know people keep bringing up New Zealand. They say New Zealand and the United States are the only two countries in the world where we're allowed to have pharmaceutical advertising Advertising. freely in in the media. And so I'm wondering, so we have um, captured of our, um, you know, we have capture of our uh, media outlets by pharma because they represent such a large percentage of the advertising income for these stations and they don't want to jeopardize their income, you know, their advertising mm. income. I'm wondering if that's the same in New Zealand. Not quite. Yes yes, and no, not quite to the same extent. So, I mean, in the United States, you I, I mean, I can't tell you how many shows I would see and they that had the show and they said, the show proudly brought to you by Pfizer. In this country, it was less than that. I mean, we don't actually, funnily enough, have a terrible amount of medical advertising on television for prescription medication. But in this country, it was the government. The government spent an inordinate amount on like millions and millions and millions of dollars 
on advertising, getting the shots, making sure that you complied with COVID measures. It was blanket everywhere. You just could not escape it. It was, I mean, it made Soviet-style propaganda look like, you know, a walking packet. And you wonder, because our government did that too, and you wonder, first of all, where'd they get all that money from? And then at least in our country, they bought hundreds of millions of dollars worth of vaccines, even even before they have been FDA approved. They were already buying them and they were already ready to be rolled out the day after they received FDA approval. So the whole process, they felt very surely there was not going to be a hitch. It's almost as if this whole thing was coordinated by the pharmaceutical companies. Mm. And there was so much money being given to the government that the government went along with that, right? It's almost that Mm. way. And certainly in our hospitalized patients in this country, everybody had the same protocol and it wasn't working well at all. I mean, everybody got remdesivir, everybody got a steroid. And, um, you know, if you got into the intensive care unit on a ventilator, you did not do well. Um, And, you know, I said at one point to the head of our, uh, you know, intensive care unit, maybe we should be looking at a different protocol. This one isn't working well, but um, the the incentive was there. If, if you in the United States, if a patient went on a ventilator, the hospital got another ten or thirteen thousand more. If you gave remdesivir, the hospital got another twenty percent more for the hospitalization for a patient who was COVID. You know, it's all the money was lined up for hospitals to just follow this protocol that really was getting poor results. I come from a sales and marketing background, so. I looked at this entire rollout and I could see the process and what they were doing. And there's a thing called a funnel process in sales. And and I was like, oh, they're feeding the funnel. And here, unlike the privatized medical system in the United States, we have a socialized medical system here. So all roads run through the government. We have a medicines agency here called MedSafe, and they were tasked at looking at the vaccine and doing their own assessment of the vaccine. And they had a series of recommendations back to the government and concerns around the rollout on the vaccine, which our government decided to completely ignore Hmm. and roll it out anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, and and that's where we are now. And, And again, that erosion of trust because we have to trust that those who are governing us have our best intentions at heart. And I know for a fact that even old skeptics like me, I'm seeing lots of people who uh, have traditionally always trusted that the government had their best intentions at heart now have seen that that was not the case or at, at best misguided. Yes, yes. And it's opened up the eyes of lots of people to well, if this is how these vaccines were approved, and if these vaccines had so many side effects, what about all the other vaccines? You know, it sort of opened people's eyes to start questioning whether or not all these other vaccines are really necessary. Mm. And are there side effects, just like, you know, clearly there were for the COVID shots. So moving forward now, before we head off, what are you seeing now, say, over the next, they've just released this new bivalent. You're about to head into your flu season. What are your predictions in terms of uptakes, reactions, and heading into even two with all the political shenanigans you've got going on? Are you feeling headwinds and change with some of the medical ethics around all of this? Well, I mean, there's clearly a push in this country, in the United States, to just repeat the whole experience. There 
universities already mandating the shots for their university students, even though it's absolutely ridiculous because they're at most risk of the myocarditis. And why would you subject this younger population who has minimal risk from COVID to to a, a vaccine that has a huge risk potentially for that age group? We see masks, you know, people starting to mandate masks. Um, so it, they're trying to repeat the experience. Um, I think there are a lot of people who are going to resist, more people who are going to resist this time than previously. And now we actually have an experience. We We have knowledge of how it went and that it didn't work. And despite the masks, despite the vaccines, we had wave after wave of COVID, right? And, you know, the virologist said, if you vaccinate during a pandemic, you're only going to select for variants that will escape, you know, from, mm-hmm. from the vaccines. And that's exactly what we see now. That's the reason why here we are. What are we only uh, 23 years into this? And we're now, you know, into our second reconstituted bivalent vaccine. And what's interesting, I don't know, this hasn't received a lot of news coverage, but there were no human trials on the Pfizer, the new Pfizer booster. Okay. It was the studies mice or something. Yeah. Well, I think there were 10 mice in one group and 10 mice in another group. So they only did try it new vaccine on 10 mice and they compared it to the, I think the bivalent vaccine. So, and all they're measuring is neutralizing antibodies, but they have no knowledge of whether that's really going to correlate with protection or not, because this is a new variant and we would need to study it to see how effective this vaccine really is in humans. But they haven't done any of that. They've made hundreds of millions of dollars on their vaccines, but they haven't done the clinical studies. Mm. Um, I've got one other quick question I actually want to ask you as a professor. How are you seeing and perceiving the young medical students that are coming through when you challenge them? Because ethics is about challenging ideas. How are they coping with that? Are they they already coming in preconditioned to one viewpoint and you're actually having to to shake their cage a little bit? So how are they coping? Honestly, it's taboo to talk about the COVID, the whole COVID thing, because the mainstream media has so pushed it. And then what we have are our medical societies are coming after doctors and saying they, they, um, you know, they, uh, they were spouting misinformation. If they're quoting statistics that are true, but just don't go along with the narrative, you know, we have excellent doctors in this country, you know, who've lost their licenses or had their licenses threatened, who were, who were, you know, really recommending ways to try and treat people. You know, early on in this country, we didn't have a vaccine. And so people were who were diagnosed with COVID were just told, go home. And if you get sick, come back. No preventive care, you know, no, no symptomatic treatment, no repurposed drugs, even though there was literature prior to COVID saying that hydroxychloroquine seemed to be effective against viral replication, ivermectin, at least in vitro, seemed to be effective against viral replication. There was there was uh, literature on zinc. The zinc, once it got into cells, seemed to stop viral replication. There was literature on vitamin D boosting the immune status. So there were lots of things that could be done. But doctors who suggested those things got in trouble. Um, 
which is which is very sad. So at any rate, the point is with regard to the trainees now, the medical students, the residents, the fellows, it's it's just not an area that you can comfortably in a large group have a discussion. You know, off to the side, maybe one student here or there will maybe ask a question, but not in a large group because they're afraid of um, what other people might think. And it's really sad that a lot of our young physicians and leadership have just totally bought into the pharmaceutical company narrative, even though if they seriously looked at the quality of the research that's been done, it's very shabby, you know, for, um, you know, 10 mice, 20 mice, maybe 100 humans. I think I heard Moderna had 100 humans in their clinical trial, but they didn't look for adverse effects. I think they just looked to see what the antibody levels were. And pretty much, if you read carefully all the news reports and statements, they say it might be effective. They don't give you any, you know, mm. any any guarantee. And, and, and of course, we know from the first go around, the 95% effective was, um, <laughs> was not true. No. Or it wasn't true, true for long. No. And it, it's really sad that horizontal policing, in a way, that yes. has happened yes. amongst meds. And we've seen it here. And it is really, I can understand it, you know, particularly when you're in the grist in the mill. And I just remember it with Mr. Marie is that you have studied and worked so hard, so hard. And he said there are points in your career, he said that you literally will not question anything because you need to get to that next point in your career and if you create a roadblock or a pothole or anything along the way that could be career ending but what he has found really difficult is coming out the other side is how so many of his colleagues know the ethics of lockdown or the the lack of informed consent or any of those things is completely wrong and they feel utterly powerless to do anything about it. Yeah, or or or, or scared to do so. I mean, yeah. a lot of our young physicians are 200000 or $300,000 in debt, and they can't afford to lose their job because they'll lose everything they have. So they have to keep quiet, um, you know, because of the system. Which then, of course, is completely cyclical around to trust, isn't it? That, you know, that trust that you need to have with your medical professional. Well, It has been an utter joy to talk to you this morning, Elvin. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, This article, if people want, and I'm going to make sure that the link is with our team. So if you want to get a copy of that article, inbox at realitycheck.radio or flick us a text to 2057. But if people want to hunt it out for themselves, Rethinking the Ethics of COVID-19 Pandemic Lockdowns, it is published where? In the Hastings Centre Report, came online August 8th. Lovely. Thank you so much. Don't disappear. Still more great content. I've got some replays, some of the Busky's best bits for you coming up here on Reality Check Radio. And thank you so much again, Dr. Moss, for your time this morning. Well, you're quite welcome. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye.